We have been journeying through the season of Advent, which is a time where we look back on the birth of Jesus and all that his birth means to the world. And we also look forward to the return of Jesus when he will come here and make all things new. And we light these four candles, one each week. We have lit the candles of hope and peace and joy and love. And lighting these candles, what we are saying is that in Jesus, there is a light in the darkness. In Jesus, there is a hope, a peace, a joy and a love to be found that cannot be found from any other source. We declare, along with the angels in heaven who spoke at his birth, that God is changing the world as only he can through the birth of his son. The story, as we know, about God and his people is a little bit of a complicated one. You know, the story in and of itself is a love story. But there are some things we need to recognize about love stories. When I say the term love story, you might have an image pop into your head, which is one of, let's say, flowers and hearts and people being all, Google, you, you hang up first. No, you hang up first. Like, you know, that might be what you have in mind when you think of a love story. But those, in my opinion, are not really love stories. They might be infatuation stories, but they're not love stories because if you want to tell me a love story, then the story needs to be messy. There need to be problems that people have to deal with. Why are love stories so messy? Well, let me ask you this question. How do you know that love is truly present in a relationship? I mean, there are outward signs, like, like we were saying, like maybe they do things that we consider romantic, or they hold hands, or they do all the mushy stuff, ugh. Or, or the way that they talk about one another. Or, or the way that you see them support each other. And, and yes, all those things are love. And we've seen these things happen in many relationships. We've experienced them ourselves. But we have also seen in many of these relationships where love was, we think, at one time present or that, that it doesn't always carry on to the end. We have seen love falter, haven't we? We have seen love come to a conclusion that might not have been expected. And why does that happen? It's because within that relationship, love meets the thing within the person's life that it simply cannot overcome. This is the one bridge I cannot cross. I've put up with this for years and years, and I can't put up with it any longer. So we have to know that love is going to face encounters. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that it's not real love if it can't pass every test. However, 
I do think that love is not love if it is not tested. What does that mean? Anyone can say they love someone if that love is never put to the test. Right? I mean, it's easy for me to say that I love someone, but if I am never called upon to love them in some sort of active way, then how do you know that I actually love them or value them more than anyone else? You know, it's, it's the same with faith, if, we, if this helps us understand kind of what I'm saying. You can talk all day long about how you trust your parachute to open and get you to the ground, but at some point you've got to jump out of the airplane right? That's when your faith is proved. Love is the same way. Love like faith needs a proving ground, and often that proving ground in our lives are the difficulties and hardships that we come against. And sometimes those difficulties and hardships prove too much to where the love we have for someone else shifts into something different. Let's look at some familiar words from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is, as you know, if you've read this before, the love chapter. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records, no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth that always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Okay, so this is a passage that we've read several times, right? And what do we see in these words? Firstly, we see that love is what gives everything else about our relationship with God's substance. With, without it, whatever we may do is hollow. A resounding gong or a clanging cymbal, something that makes noise with no purpose. The second section tells us something just as important. The way that you know that love is present is that it shows itself when the situation may call for a different reaction. It is kind even when kindness is not returned. It does not get angry easily. So while others might get angry very quickly when love is not present, love does not anger quickly, even when there is reason to be angry. It perseveres, which is the one that, that should explain this to us more simply. If you need to persevere, then what's happening? There is struggle, right? 
There is struggle that has to be lived through. Love shows itself in places that would normally elicit a different response. And love does not respond in kind, but gives what may be undeserved. Because love must find expression. And it shows itself in how it expresses itself to the object of its love. Now, we should be completely humbled by the words of 1 Corinthians 13. And it's for this reason. This is a love that we aspire to, right? But it is not a love that we are all capable of. Or rather, I should say that any of us are capable of in this form. Because do you know who this passage describes? It describes God. It describes what God's love is like. And while we may try to love in this same way, we know that it's not always going to work, right? either from us or from the one that we love, that things change, that things happen. And this kind of love is a challenge for us. But that's something that makes the story of Jesus so unique. The story of Jesus is, above all, a love story. And it is perhaps the most unconventional love story that one could imagine. I mean, think about it. God loves his people, right? And God sent Jesus here to earth to live amongst us, to die for us, to be resurrected for us so that we might have life with him. What other all-powerful creature is there that would do this? For those that are so far below, there is no one. It's interesting, you know, when you study, let's say, Greek or Roman gods, for example. They are glorified versions of us. They are envious. They're jealous. They're petty. They get angry. They do all of these things. But this God, this God that we see in Jesus is something completely different. And it was so different that there is now a literary term for a book that sounds that someone is doing something like Jesus. It is called the Christ figure. And you see them throughout books, throughout literature, throughout uh, movies. It's all over the place. Because God shows his love to us in an extreme way when his reaction to us could have very easily and maybe rightfully been a different one. So let's dig into the dynamics that are at play that lead us up to the point where Jesus comes to live among us. And I want to suggest that there are four dynamics that we have to deal with this morning. The first one is this. God is waiting. God is waiting. Something that I think can get lost in the translation about God and his feelings throughout this story that we know is that God had a vision for how things should go. He envisioned himself being our God and we would be his people. And it was a relationship that was based on trust, 
dependence, and love. God would provide for all of our needs, and we would be his people. But the relationship lasted only a little while before humanity chose to become like God, and God was left with the people who openly rejected him. God has had to deal with these situations over and over again. You know, Adam and Eve just scratched the surface of how far these things could go. God restores, he blesses, his people forget about him, he lets them go, their lives fall apart, they realize they're in trouble, they call out to God, God restores, he blesses, his people forget about him, and on and on and on and on it goes. So can we just recognize something really quick? Thank goodness that God is not like us. I mean, seriously. Thank goodness that he is not like us, and furthermore, that he does not respond like we would if we were caught in this cycle. He's not like us, but don't think that God is not hurt by this pattern. You know, you, can, you see God's frustration, God's anger come out throughout uh, the Old Testament. But when Jesus is here, you see it come out in his parables, the stories that he tells to help people understand what God is like and what God envisions for this world. So we're just going to look very briefly at two. The first one is the parable of the tenants. So a man owns a vineyard. And he wants to rent it out, so he rents it out to some farmers. The farmers grow the crops, and it's time for the owner of the vineyard to come and take his share of these crops. So he sends his servant to go get his share of the crops, and the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. The landowner thought, well, this must be a mistake. So he sends another servant, but that one was also beaten and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent a third, and the same thing happened. So the landowner looks at the situation, and he says, you know what? I'll send my son, because they'll respect him. And the renters see the son coming, and they look at him, and they think, if we kill him, then what's his will be ours. And so they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Now this story probably tells us a lot more about humanity within the God story than it does about God, but his point of view is important. Humanity, of course, is represented by the farmers, that God allows them to live in his vineyard and he only asks for what is his. But humanity took what was not theirs and claimed it as their own. So God sent servants to collect what was owed to him, but those servants were beaten and sent back to their master empty-handed. So he thought, if I send my son to this place, then they will surely listen to him, but they did not listen to him either. And this tells us that to a degree, well, to the nth degree, I suppose, 
that God knows that we are takers. That God understands that we are going to often look at what is good for us in any given scenario, even when it involves him. But the father, the landowner, still has some hope for us that we will not be the worst version of ourselves. And so he sends servants again and again. How heartbreaking is it that the landowner loses his son to such people? It's terrible. And the landowner, we have to believe, cannot be anything but hurt by the whole scenario. Now, the prodigal son is a similar story with a more personal twist and a different ending. A son went to his father and asked for his inheritance while his father was still alive. He took what his father had spent a lifetime building and went out and squandered it. He ended up uh, living with pigs and thinking to himself, if I can just go be one of my father's servants, that life is better than this one. And the miracle of the story, of course, is that the son decided to return home and his father saw him from a great distance. And when he saw him, he ran to him and restored him completely, not even letting him apologize for what he did. Very different story. The son is just as selfish as the tenants in the previous story, except his move was much more personal because of his relationship with the father. But at least he came to his senses and returned himself ready to be humbled before his dad. But the father, who clearly loves the son, was not only ready to restore his son if he were to return home, but he was looking for him to return and ran to him and restored him immediately. Okay, again, the question is, what does this tell us about God? Can we imagine that the father was hurt by his son's request? Yes. And for a multitude of reasons. Dad, I wish you were dead, but you're not. So can I have your stuff now? Right. There's a lot of reasons why we don't like him. But the father... Not only does he give the son what he asked for, but he waits for him to come back. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. And we are supposed to, as we hear that story, as we read that story, we are supposed to really not like the prodigal son. There is nothing to like about him. Because the story is not about him as much as it's about the father who cannot wait for his son to return home so that he can restore him completely. We have another example of this from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, who was the king at the time, asked the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you also, will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. 
He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. It's an interesting situation that we see here. Whereas God wants Ahaz to know that he's with him, but Ahaz refuses to ask God to show him that he's with him. And God tells him multiple times, I will show you, just ask me to show you. And Ahaz says, no, I won't do it. So what does God do? Fine. You won't ask for a sign. I'm going to give you one anyway. How you like them apples? And what does he promise? That there is one coming, and when he comes, that God will set all things right. God, you see, is waiting for the day when he will be our God and we will be his people. And there will be nothing, nothing between us. God is not the only one waiting. We are also waiting for him. You know, as Christians, we are perpetually waiting for God to move and work in our lives. We pray to God about what he's going to do or how he's going to do it. But there's a twist to this truth that we need to confront. Because as much as we may pray to God or ask for his guidance or ask for him to work and do things, we long for him to make things right, but we want him to do things and make things right on our terms. We want to define what right is. God, we pray for restoration and make it look like this. God, we pray for blessing and make it look like this. God, we pray for wisdom. And I've already decided it's this. We cannot ignore that there is frustration, that there is worry, that there's fear, that there's sometimes anger on our side of the relationship with God as well. And we, who do not love even God like 1 Corinthians 13, grow weary of what a life lived in faith can look like. And these kinds of thoughts and words are all over the Bible, especially in the Psalms. You see it over and over again. Well, actually, Lamentations would be another uh, great uh, example of that. But from Psalm 80, verses 1 through 7, Hear us, shepherds of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might, come and save us. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us an object of derision to our neighbors, and our enemies mock us. Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we might be saved. You know, something that we need to appreciate about the psalmist is that he doesn't just complain, right? I mean, anyone could just say, you know, God, this stinks, fix it. 
Instead, he goes into great visual images and poetry to help us understand just how much he dislikes the situation he's in. You have fed your people with the bread of tears. So we have this correlation to food, but it's not enough to just have tears be food. It is also what they drink, and they are drinking it by the bowlful. We have a mighty God who is on our side, and that mighty God does what he needs when he needs to. And his moves, as we know, are not arbitrary, but they are purposeful. God has a will, he has a plan, but he is not working according to our will or our plan. And when those things come into conflict, we get frustrated. God, I asked you to show me, and all you showed me was this. And I don't want this. So I'm asking again, show me something else. We love him, and we know he loves us, although there are moments in our lives which make us question whether he does or not. So we wait for his moves, knowing that he has written the ending and hoping that we will get to see our part in it. But all that is changed. As much as we still feel those things understand, the dynamic is changed because he has come, you see. The birth of Jesus was the turning point in this love story where God is waiting, where his people are waiting and God's love had certainly been long-suffering, but in this move of sending Jesus to the earth, the God of the universe unmistakably declared his unending love for his people. From Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to his son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Okay, first of all, I want us to note that Jesus was not brought into the world through an ideal love relationship. You might say that he was born into one of the more awkward relationships I can think of. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. I promise, I promise, Joseph, this is what happened. Right. But here's the thing that is pretty amazing about the situation itself. Jesus was born into a family where genuine love had to be involved. 
where 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love had to be involved. Mary had to love and trust God, even though what God was telling her and doing to her was crazy. And Joseph had to love and trust Mary, which at first he didn't. But we know he loves Mary because he was going to do everything within his power to not embarrass her. He was not vengeful. He was not spiteful. And so God spoke to him and said, no, really, this is the story. So Jesus was born to a family that had to decide whether they would honor and love one another, whether they would make it or even try to make it at the very beginning of their relationship and show to one another a love that is uncommon. They had to choose love, and they did. But that is not really the point. The point is that finally, in Jesus, Emmanuel has come. God is with us. And of course, God had been with us all along, but this is something different. In Jesus, God put his goodness, his power, his love into Emmanuel. And what did Emmanuel do while he lived with us? Oh, not much, really. He just loved those who were not loved, who had been kicked out by their family or by society or by religious leaders. He healed the sick, cured the lame and the blind. He changed lives every single day. Every single day. He changed people's lives. And more than that, he proclaimed the great love of God to the poor and to the disenfranchised, to those who had been written off. It's not good enough to be loved by this God. And Jesus stepped into that space and says, you're not good enough to be loved by this God. You have no idea how much God loves you. You can argue with me about it. But I'm just telling you, I'm here because God loves you you he showed the world what it looks like when all the waiting will be over the possibility the potential for what it means when god is with his people and in the greatest act of sacrifice he showed us what his love for us really looks like he expressed it in terms that are undeniable jesus died that we might have life with our God. And that's the biggest twist of all. That God wants us to have eternal life with him. Look, I want some of you to go home after you've been in my house for like 30 minutes. God wants you to have eternal life with him, which means forever. Forever. God wants to be with you. And friends, Jesus died that we might have life with our God. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection promise us one wonderful thing. And the last movement of this story is that he will return. 
He'll come back. And that is the conclusion to the great love story. It's a reunion. It's a restoration of relationship. He will be our God. We will be his people. There will be nothing between us. And someday, as much as much of a struggle as this relationship might feel like to us, as much hardship and pain and things that happen in our life, someday when he comes, because he is coming, we will know how much God loves us. And we will be awed by that. We will understand for the first time what God's love means. So we declare, as we have declared every week, church, that there is no hope like the one that has been found in God. There is no peace like the one that is given to us through Jesus. There is no joy that can compare to the one that we have in Jesus. And there is no love demonstrated or shown by anyone else ever that is comparable to the love of God. And that love, that incomparable love, is for us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so we say, Lord, come quickly. We're, we're willing to wait, but we'd be happier not waiting. <laughs>